Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain and all across the Nordics are working to transform the food system. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing challenges, and realizing a common vision for how we can build a sustainable future together. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. A native New Zealander, Ken Weindorp was the sous chef at Amas in Copenhagen before becoming the head of R&D in their research kitchen. Amas has been recognized multiple times, not only as one of the best restaurants in the world, but also as the most sustainable restaurant in the Nordics. For them, sustainability has been a massive creative constraint, inspiring them to make major changes around how they cook, recycle, source, and operate in their local environment. Today, the restaurant's food and ingredients are 90% organic. Food waste has been reduced by 75% since they started in 2013, and their annual water consumption is down by 5,200 liters. The restaurant's facilities also include a garden with 80 varietals of plants and an aquaponic farming system in their greenhouse. Kim and I discuss how they undertook the sustainable transition since they started. We also chat about why sustainability is a good business model, the creative process deriving from zero waste, and how they are looking to collaborate with startups and other partners. So I'd love to start with digging into your background and understanding where you come from. So the first question is one we ask everybody, which is, when did you first realize or was there a moment when you realized that you wanted to work with food? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of fell into it a little bit by accident. Um, I wasn't a, a sort of a particularly studious child. And I attended to mess around a little bit at school and uh, I sort of finished school without really having anything to do. So I decided to enroll in a, in a cooking program. Uh, and even after I did that, I wasn't really interested in food as a subject. I definitely lived a lifestyle for a, for a few years and it wasn't really until I moved to Sydney in uh, 2000. And I, I got really lucky for me that I, I moved into a house with uh, two really uh, good cooks who were dedicated to what they were doing and, and, and started introducing me to the fact that, that food was something serious. Uh, and, and it wasn't, cooking wasn't just a, a lifestyle where you stayed up late and got hammered and, and went to next, work the next day. But it was actually about food. And uh, I started working at a restaurant called Sailor's Thai, which was a very traditional Thai restaurant. And it was where I, I really had flavors that just changed the way I thought about food. Uh, really explosive and strong and vibrant and uh, changed everything I thought about what food could be, especially coming from New Zealand where at that time there wasn't a lot of uh, strong traditional food coming from other countries. How did you make your way from down under then to a mosque which is located in Copenhagen? I've just been, I've been traveling the world for Basically, since I was I was qualified, I'm quite lucky to do that as chefs. There's always work available for you. You can just kind of drift around and, and find work somewhere where you want to be or get offered a job, as which is what I tended to do, and then go to wherever that job was to, to see what had happened. And I had been living in Japan for a while, and my partner was offered a, a job in Copenhagen. So we moved to Copenhagen, and I just 
happened to be moving to Copenhagen at exactly the right time as when the mass was opening. And yeah, just kind of fell into it. <laughs> We can almost put you in the category then of being a love refugee, which tends to be why it seems many foreigners move <laughs> to Denmark. But that's great. And I mean, Amas is super famous for all the work you guys have been doing in sustainability, and you've won multiple awards for being the most sustainable restaurant in the Nordics. What is the backstory for why Amas decided to focus on sustainability and zero waste? And how did that kind of come about as the ethos of the restaurant? Yeah, when we, when we first opened the restaurant, we, there was no, no thought to, to any of this sort of process. It was definitely a restaurant out to do delicious food without any thought of the consequence of or repercussions of, of what you're doing. And it didn't really start changing until we started after a year of being open of uh, working on getting out organic certification because that became just a, a really important point for us was that we felt we needed to be serving food that was grown in the right way and then along with that you can't ignore all the other things that that come with that if you're going to pay so much attention to your food being grown in a very specific way why are you not paying attention to your water usage or your plastic usage or your carbon footprint or any of these other things they just they seem to come naturally with it if you if you really think and it's a it's a little silly to think also that you could only have an organic restaurant without thinking about these other things. It's a bit sort of surface level uh, to, to only care about the quality of your food and what that does for the, the state of the environment without considering everything else that goes on from when you get the food to your restaurant. And back when it was in the beginning, did you guys have the garden and already those kinds of things in place or did that all those elements evolve really from the point of saying we want to get this certification, but then how do we branch it out into everything else? No, we, we had the garden to start with. Uh, that was, that was already there. It was one of the, the points of building uh, the restaurant out here. And when we first built it out here, there, there really was nothing. It was the abandoned shipyard much uh, more than it is now with all these other things going on out here. And we were, we were sort of very alone Um, but it was space and the amount of space that you could get for the, the same amount of money as if you were trying to build a restaurant in the, in the middle of the city meant that we could have this big outdoor area and summer in Copenhagen is fantastic. And why would you not want space for people to, to be outside if they want? It's a, it's a really beautiful area in its own way. And, being able to also go out and, and have a look at things that are growing. And it's not a huge garden. We certainly don't grow everything we need for the restaurant, but it definitely keeps us a lot more in contact with the seasons and with what's happening right now, because you can go out for five minutes and walk around and physically see what's, what's happening. And I'd like to talk more about the case for sustainability and how you guys have gone into that You do have this gold certification making you 90 to 100% organic, but in addition, and correct me if I'm wrong, your 95% of your ingredients are sourced locally in Denmark, and you also make sure that the meats and the fish are ethically sourced. And I know that in Denmark, 
consumers buy the largest share of organic per capita. So it sounds like the whole nation kind of supports this movement. But I'm curious, back when you started and you were really starting to push your producers and the vendors that you have or just even looking at how you do things in the restaurant, if you felt like it was easy to create a demand for organic or if it was very difficult to find partners? Like, what were the challenges and the barriers around that? Yeah, um, we we work with the, the 90 to 100. They always allow you a, a gap there because there are certain things you can't get. And there's a lot of things that you can't claim to be organic. Uh, seafood doesn't come under an organic thing. Wild game, foraged uh, plants and vegetables and that sort of thing don't come from organic. So we need that. 90 to 100 um, level to be able to do that. But when we we first started doing this, and, and even now, it's a difficult process. The the play the system in place is industrial, and there's not a huge amount of organic purveyors, especially if you also want to have organic purveyors that are coming from your own region or as close as possible. You, know, you don't want to buy organic produce that's been shipped from the other side of the world it doesn't it's also counterintuitive it doesn't make any sense um and again that's that's that superficial level of having something that's organic that tracks you ten thousand miles to get there it's it's kind of silly um there's a lot of small purveyors here that are organic there's not a lot of huge ones but we've, we've been very lucky to work with some of the the ones we have they're very open and not only are they, they interested in growing organic, but they're interested in working with restaurants. So we're able to, to suggest sometimes or, or ask for certain things and, and they're more than sort of happy to work with us in growing these things. So we're, we're not limited to, to strictly what was on the market already. We're able to broaden our, our goodie bag. <laughs> That's awesome. I mainly ask because Copenhagen and the Nordics in general is so famous for having these incredible world-class restaurants. But when it comes to really influencing the agricultural practices and how things are grown, I'm curious if you're, in your experience, you feel like it's more driven from the consumer or from the restaurants or where does that push come from to create a different kind of demand? Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of world-class I mean, there's a phenomenal amount of world-class restaurants in the Nordic region, and they are. They're incredible. Uh, as to how many of them are sustainable or ethically driven, that's a, that's a different sort of question. But I think the the market for, for produce that's outside of the, the standard Nordic uh, mainstream has been driven by, by the restaurants who want interesting things. You know, we'd... Even though we're living in the Nordic region, we'd still like to be able to use chilies if someone wants to grow them for us. And now we've found a woman who grows fantastic chilies for us and will do specific things. And she spends a lot of time working on tomatoes that are just absolutely incredible. And so it's amazing to be able to use them. And these things are definitely driven by restaurants, I think, rather than consumers uh, for, the, for the things that are, that are outside the mainstream. Um, I heard of one startup in Norway that's been creating a marketplace for restaurants to be buying local produce and kind of old, old varietals that otherwise maybe been lost. And it was interesting because their business model has seemingly a higher degree of trust because the restaurant will pay the farmer anywhere from five to 15% for the ingredients. So there's a basis of trust and a margin there, but it's a different way of looking at 
it might not be five to 15%. It was pretty significant, though, the space between. But it was interesting to see that they were building that kind of relationship where it was more about restoring, growing a lot of different diverse crops than just Mm -hmm. having the average thing you see. And they were working together in that partnership to make it possible for smallholder farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to do that. Some of our our small suppliers, we have to pre-order and and offer up front. We'll say, okay, we will buy everything that you can produce if you produce this this thing for us, you know, and we have to offer to do that in order to get them to do it because otherwise it's not financially viable for them. And so then it's on us to be able to sell it. Um, But at the same time, it gives us access to something interesting and it's, it's worth it, I think, in the long run. How does that apply into the space of recycling then? Because you guys have also, I think, pretty incredibly been working and finding vendors that are willing to take back the paper bla- paper bags, plastic packaging, styrofoam, mesh bags. Was This I haven't heard so much as being the common norm. Maybe it is. But was that a difficult thing to create the relationship for? Absolutely. I think it, it's difficult because it, it you come with discussions and again luckily working with a lot of small producers it's much more easy and flexible than it is working with large industrial producers who have a a system in place and are are unable to flex in any way for for small changes but small producers you can say look we'd rather you deliver us all of these vegetables just in a crate that we empty out when you get here and you take the crate back again and they're like yes and it's okay for them to do that because generally it's them who are delivering the vegetables to our back door anyway um, and that works. It's not just an anonymous driver turning up in a, a large truck who doesn't really do anything with the vegetables. He's just the driver and the delivery. So working with the small providers uh, definitely helps um, our ability to do that. But it's uh, again, it's, it's always a work in progress because it's, it's not the standard and finding people who are able to do that. And then it becomes on our part, finding space to keep everything that we're going to have to return and all of this sort of thing. It's, it's work for everybody. Um, and it, it's definitely a consistent uh, work in progress. It, it never seems to, to end finding new ways to use less. I mean, in that point, it definitely is work for everybody. And what kind of culture have you guys had to create in order to make sure that people are strategically thinking how they can be minimizing their waste or using this as a resource, resource tr- constraint for creativity? We're, I mean, we're quite lucky in the restaurant. It was, it was difficult to start with. It was incredibly difficult. Don't, it's one of the, the things that we always talk about, going organic, becoming sustainable. It's a lot of work. It really is, and we're not going to lie about it. It generally costs money to register for all these things, being organic and that sort of thing, and it's a lot of work changing your systems to becoming something more sustainable. But at the end of the day, once they're running, it's no more work than before. Um, And if we'd known we were going to do this, it wouldn't have been any more work setting up the restaurant for the way we run now. It's just that we had to do it after we'd already started. So of course it becomes more work changing systems. Um, And to start with, it was just a few of us who were really pushing the, the drive for all of this sort of thing. But once it, it really took place, it, it just becomes a culture of uh, a kitchen. And in some ways, we're, we're pretty lucky in the fact that, I mean, the reality is, although everybody's civil and talks nice to each other, a kitchen is not really a democracy. 
And this is the way the kitchen. <laughs> to put it nicely, this, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way the kitchen is run, and you can choose to work here or you can choose not to work here, and, and that's how it is. You know, that's the democracy part. You can choose to be there or not, but if you're going to be here, this is the way you're going to work. And once people come into this sort of uh, system and, and climate, then they they adapt very quickly, and I think everybody enjoys that little bit of push to be creative with with things that are there because there's a it's always an added bonus of, of taking on a little ownership for yourself and, and seeing these things become part of a bigger system. Do you feel that your R&D team is mainly leading the push towards becoming circular or zero waste? Because in what I've been reading, I mean, you have other ideas, which is like melting down candle stubs into egg cartons to use them as fire starters, uh, all this stuff around saving something like 90 liters of water a day by collecting the water bottles from the dining room for use in the kitchen or the garden. I mean, are those ideas coming from employees too, or is that mainly a more holistic management level? No, I mean, they come from anyone. And uh, the the management is, is very good at listening to everybody and giving it a go. You know, if it sounds like it might work, we'll give it a go twice to make sure, you know, it mm. needs to, but you would be foolish to not listen to everybody's ideas. It, they would cut you off much and everybody has something to offer um, and the smallest things can make the biggest changes so it's uh, it's open for everybody to, to do this sort of thing the, the differences of course we are running uh, two two busy restaurants and a brewery now so it's um, also about people's time and this is why we developed an R&D team because we needed to allow more time to think about the things without stepping into and running a restaurant service at the same time. Are you seeing this kind of culture for sustainability be passed off onto the diners? Or do you find that the audience tends to already be people who are green and appreciate that? I, I would hope that we pass it off to the diners. Yeah. Uh, I would I would really like to think that everybody takes something away. But of course, we also want our, our focus is still on serving delicious food. And if you want to come to a mass and take absolutely nothing away from it, you should still have a really delicious meal. And, and that's the point of it. And it can be as much for you as you want. Uh, we get a lot of people who know what the restaurant is and they, they become very interested in it and they're, they're really excited. Uh, and we get people who know nothing about it when they come here and they learn some things and they become very interested in it. And we get other people who come who just want to have a delicious meal and, and couldn't really care less. But we hope that we can still serve them their expectations, which is a, a really enjoyable time. And and that's okay too. You know, we, we can't stand in front of everybody and, and scream and, and wreck their meal if that's not what they... Uh, if that's not what they want. But it's good that you can help people make a better decision just when going out to eat. Um, I'm curious, too, if you have had any role models in doing this. You said in the beginning that, you know, it's not necessarily everybody who's falling under the same wheelhouse, but where were you guys looking in order to figure out how to tackle this? Because it is so big on so many different operational levels. Um, I mean, a lot of it we've learned on the way. You get the... The guys working over at Silo in London, they are militant. It's amazing what they are doing. They, they really were, were pushing uh, very hard on this a long time before anybody else was. Um, 
with with running a, a very low waste restaurant, um, and and they're very open with what they do, and they really want to to share, and and they've been very sort of positive role models, you know, because it's always well look at those guys they're doing it a little bit harder okay well we have to go try we can do more we can do more yeah now we have a lot of listeners who are running all different kinds of food related companies or generally interested in the space of sustainability and you said that it took you had to spend money in order to create the sustainable transition but is it a good business case to be sustainable absolutely um I mean, aside from the fact that if we're not, we won't have a business to run. Um, if we just continue to to plow through the earth like it's nothing. Um, yeah, good point. In a, big, point. In, in a bigger scope, <laughs> yes, it's very sustainable. Um, but also changing these things, like our, our first uh, water rebate, uh, you know, the month after we, we uh, started storing water that was just unnecessarily going down the drain. We've got 20,000 Kroner rebate uh, on our water bill. Like it, it's very sustainable. Uh, and I don't, I have a, I have a saying where I don't care whether you want to make a change because you enjoy the new flavors of the things we're doing or because you love the world and you want to hug a tree or because you just want to make money. Uh, we offer someone something to, to all of those options. And I think being responsible is um, is definitely beneficial to your wallet. And I guess it's true with everything. It kind of takes money to make money, and you always have to spend money on a transition in order to make it happen. Absolutely. Like I said, if we had known the things we know now when we were setting up the restaurant, it wouldn't have cost any more. That sounds like a brilliant piece of advice you maybe want to pass on there. If you would, if, yeah. <laughs> can we know some of the things we wish you'd known before? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Like if we had just uh, if we had known these things first, we we would have built differently and we would have acted differently, and the cost wouldn't have been any more in setting up the restaurant. It's only because we had to make a transition, and you know that's just how it is for the world now. We've been running on a system for so long without thinking about it we are going to have to make a transition and it is going to cost us money. But at the end of the day, the end result, which is a planet to live on is worth that cost. Yeah. I mean, we can't, I, you know, it's so true. We kind of forget that point in the big picture because we get into the details and the money and the finance and it, we just have to remind ourselves of why we're doing this to begin with and why it's important because yeah, if we don't survive, then what's the point? Exactly. Existential. Um, so are, I mean, let's talk a little bit then about the actual creative process and what happens. Can you walk us through some examples of how new dishes or ingredients have been created through looking at waste? Uh, sure. We just, um, so all the dishes themselves are created in the restaurants. We don't create dishes within the, the research space because we really like the idea that everybody in the the restaurant themselves has a hand in in dishes that are being created we like the creative process to not just be somebody coming from outside of the actual running kitchen and saying here's your new dish and this is how you plate it and goodbye and not having the people in the kitchen have a connection to it so what we do in the the research space is we work more on uh 
new techniques or in like individual techniques or uh, new ingredient styles and things like that. Uh, I guess one of the, the really interesting ones was we always have a, a load of egg whites. Kitchens always have loads of egg whites. Um, and there's only so many souffles or financiers or meringues you can you can make out of them. But in particular, there's always a load of 63-degree egg whites. And the 63-degree egg took over the world a few years ago, and it was a, a way of cooking egg yolks so that they were perfectly cooked, but the, the whites themselves were, were not so cooked. So when you crack the eggs open, you could scrape the white off and have this beautiful yolk that you could serve on top of dishes and it looked really nice and it tasted really delicious and luxurious and but you had all of these like opaque whites and for a long time we didn't really think about them we just thought of them as cooked whites and it wasn't until we again started building this space and having this time to sit down and think about things and these think okay so let's think about egg whites and what are they and okay they're made of 40 different proteins plus okay are they actually cooked so there's 40 different proteins they all cook at 40 different temperatures turns out that they're only 12 percent cooked so they're not really cooked so okay i wonder can we separate the the liquids from the solids can we use that again like we would use egg whites and it turns out you can it turns out you can take these cooked 63 degree egg whites and you can separate the solids and you can take the, the liquid again and you can whip them and, and use them for making whatever you would uh, a normal egg white um, and, and that was a really interesting process because it really opened our eyes to, to how deep you have to look at something uh, to, to understand whether or not it has a use. Uh, and then we were all of a sudden creating all these things again from egg whites that were once upon a time not considered usable. Um, yeah. And fermentation, is that the primary method you guys are using? Because there's also places that will use stuff like bioreactors to get the different building block components. Sure. Uh, I'd love a bioreactor if someone wants me to buy one. If someone wants to buy me a bioreactor, I'll, I'll take one. You know? um, no, uh, we, use ferment- we use everything. We, we have a saying that no technique is less or more valuable than any other one. If you can take something and you can just simply dry it and incorporate it back in and that gives you a delicious flavor, it's not any less important than something that involves two or three fermentations or any other sort of reaction going on. Doesn't Just because the process is more complicated doesn't make it more valuable um, for us. So you guys also have a lot of collaborations with different kinds of partners, both in the neighborhood with brought in and build your sister restaurant and I think Empirical Spirits. But then you collaborate with DACA Ecomotion, which is a company that can make biodiesel and biogas from the frying oil and fats, and a San Francisco uh, startup called Zero Footprint, who's helping to track and reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. More on the startup side or the private side than the restaurant side, how do these collaborations come about that you find these partners to work with? Some of them come about because we're looking for ways Like, for example, we have a lot of oil to get rid of, then we need to find a way to get rid of it responsibly, uh, which means we need to find a company that's that's working in, in the right way that can, can take out oil for us. So in those cases, we have something we're looking for and we found DACA and they're the ones that we work with to take that away so that we know that our used oil is at least being used again. Uh, not just dumped somewhere. And then 
places like uh, Zero Fruitprint uh, are places who are also looking for business and, and they approach us and we, we're we happy to work with them because we want accountability for what we're doing. We don't just want to be a restaurant that says we're organic and responsible and not have any way of actually saying, showing anybody that. And you need to be publicly accountable for it as well. You know, you can't just walk around saying it without showing if anybody asks. Mm. Are there any areas where you are currently looking to partner or collaborate to find zero waste solutions? We have the power of the crowd here. So your wish may be granted if you so desire. Oh, there's so many things. Uh, we'll take anybody who's looking at doing anything industry in the food industry. Uh, there really is a, a big drive at the moment. And I know a few companies who are working on things, but the more minds that, that work at something, the restaurant or hospitality industry does have a, a huge reliance on plastic, a, a massive reliance on plastic throughout the in, entire thing. And for us at Amass, that meant that we don't use certain techniques or processes because that would mean us using a lot of, for example, we don't sous vide anything uh, because that would just mean a fantastic amount of single-use plastic uh, being used. So when we started making the, the change to these things, we just said, okay, we will never sous vide until we can find a, a responsible way. So, I mean, heat-resistant compostable plastic would be something phenomenal um, because it's a great technique. It's just uh, something that we're not willing to do without having a, a way to do it. Um, and, and if yeah. someone has a bioreactor, they're welcome to bring it by. Noted. And if someone has a spare bioreactor <laughs> and they, they just want to drop it off, I'll, I'll take care of it for them. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> to that point, if somebody thinks that they have a great solution or a potential collaboration with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch and, so to speak, pitch you? Uh, they can contact me through the Amass website or through the Broadman Build website. Um, yeah, we can go there. What we, We're looking for people who have a project or they, they have an idea and they want somewhere to test it is, is really what it comes down to. Um, so they're in the process of doing things. We're always interested in, in new processes and, and we would love to, to help other people work out their own solutions and, and test things in a, in a working environment is, is what it comes down to. So that's yeah, a super fantastic just, uh, offer. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> what everybody needs, right? Is a place to test it where you can see the product absolutely right. like if if they have their own own startup or something going and they have they want to actually see it in action and and we think it's a good idea we'll give it a go yeah how and just because you mentioned it how does a must relate to broaden and build and what's the relationship there or well so a lot of the the talks that we give and and that sort of demonstrations people quite often will say well it's it's very easy for a mass to do these things because we charge a lot of money for the food. Therefore we have a bit more money to spend on, on things and that's fine. But what can I do in my cafe? How does this, does it, can I do this in my cafe? Can I do this in my little mom and pop restaurant? And so our answer to that was to open a casual place. Uh, so we have a casual restaurant that runs at a, a much lower uh, price point because we, we want to show people that you can do this at, at every level. It's, 
uh, it's something that you can do if you if you think about. And the the brewery opened simply because we were having trouble getting organic beer in the style we wanted. So someone said, "Well, why don't you open your own?" Oh, okay, so we did, <laughs> which has come with its own uh, very no no one here has run a brewery before, and it's been very interesting to to see the processes and see what comes from it, not only the beer, but the, the huge amount of byproduct and, and things that need to be worked with in order to, to help get this in line as well. I have to ask about the name of Brit Broaden and Build. Is that related to the theory of positive emotions? It is. It okay. 100% related. Can you explain the name and how you stumbled upon that? Because I did not know that even though I have been that there is, before. That is, that is all Matt, who is the, uh, the owner of the EMS group. And uh, and the belief that positive emotions will create a positive environment, which will give you positive returns. That's very beautiful. And it is true by eating good food and knowing that it's doing good to the world. It does kind of ignite positive emotions in oneself, I have to say. It makes sense. Uh, and then the big questions we also have at the end are, what is your vision for the food system in 10 to 15 years? I'd like to know we had one. That would be great. Um, it would be real nice if much more of the food system, or it would be much nicer if the governments would become involved with the food systems and saying that things need to change so that organic is not a choice or organic is the way things are growing. That people stopped thinking of climate change as a choice and accepting it as a reality so that we could go forward uh, producing producing things in a way that we're we're able to to have a future ourselves. What do you think we are missing to get there? Is there anything in particular when you think of government stepping in or regulation um, that you'd like to point out? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sort of individual freedom here, which gives people the right to to say, no, I don't want to buy into this, you know, and and sometimes it needs the government to step in and say, well, this is the way it is. And generally, most of the masses will then just go along with it because a lot of people don't think about it. And that's their choice to, to not think about how their life is. But if everything's changed and they're just using things like it is, then things have changed anyway, and most people don't mind. Yeah. yeah. I know you guys are working quite a bit with kids as well in teaching different agricultural practices. So at least it's also getting disseminated down that. I, I, would, I would hope so. I would love to be able to expand our kids' program. Again, if someone has a bunch of money they want to throw at us to, to teach children how to grow their food and, and cook it, that would be fantastic. A, a lot of times you look at the amount of processed food in, in supermarkets and prepackaged meals and, and that sort of thing to be very easy to think that we're only one or two generations away from people not knowing how to cook full stop and that would also be kind of scary absolutely do you guys have good attendance in your programs or how often are they running that they're uh, how many we kids run... go through a year 
So we we work with one school and we take two to three classes a year and there's about 30 children per class and it's just a, a very small part of their, their school year but they come out, they, they see the garden, they learn about the gardens, they plant their, their seeds and they come back and they tend to their, their vegetables and they learn about composting and uh, the aquaculture and, and that sort of thing and then they, they finally come back and they harvest their uh, their vegetables and they they cook them and for their parents uh, who turn up to see what they've cooked. But yeah, we do a very small class because we are a, a running restaurant and and we actually do this on our our days when the restaurant is closed. Uh, yeah, something extra, but it's it's makes you feel good anyway. <laughs> but it'd be nice to be able to run that as a full time program for sure. That would be something incredible. We add it to the wish list just in case anybody's listening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today and for being an inspiration to the community. It's been really awesome. Great. Thank you so much. It's been, uh, been fun. All right, guys, that's all for today. You can find the show notes and more episodes at nordicfoodtech.io. And if you like what you hear please be generous and take the time to rate the show or share it on social media. This is all about creating better food solutions, and we can't do that without your help. I'm Annalisa Winther, and let's spread the word about the Nordic food tech ecosystem together. See you next time.